The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with Ellie Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Hello and welcome to Our Wild World, where we bring you news and information of what is happening along the edges where people and wildlife meet. Today, my guest is Mike Nicholson, talking to us from Nairobi, Kenya. Mike is a bit of a renaissance man and a raconteur of repute. He's a man of many talents and talents that are needed in a wild landscape very different than that of our average urban urban frontline. From ranch manager at El Karama Ranch in Kenya, to bush pilot and fi- flight trainer, to serving in the wild days of the Kenya Wildlife Service. So, without further ado, welcome, Mike. Thank you, Ellie. Thank you very much. It's wonderful to have you on the show. I know we've been trying to coordinate this for quite some time, so I'm really glad here on the first day of September that we finally get together. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. Well, I know you're a busy man, but I would like to introduce to our listeners just a little bit of a hint of what they're in for today. Uh, You had written a story uh, from the old days back in uh, 2000 uh, about Meru and some of your time there. So if I may, I'd like to just read our listeners the first paragraph of this story. Is that all right with you? Please do. All right. As a child, I heard about Meru from my uncle, who said it was the jewel in the crown of all the Kent parks in Kenya. He talked of the huge tuskers roaming freely, innumerable rhinos charging keenly, rivers meandering cleanly and wildlife fanning across the pristine wilderness as far as the eye could see. I apprenticed for his mobile safari business to hear him tell of the occasional wry, humorous story of a wild Africa still existing in the archives of his incredible memory. To young ears, it was straight out of the Chronicles of Narnia, and impossible for me to believe that anyone could have lived such an adventure while contributing as much to conservation and humanity as he did. Well, it sounds like you followed very closely in his footsteps. So why don't we uh, start with you telling us a little bit about your childhood growing up in the the wild days of East Africa, Kenya. Yeah, well, um, I grew up in, uh, we moved around a lot because my parents were, 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 yeah, they they were never really fixed in one place. My dad was a wildlife artist and uh, he was one of the few people to, to successfully catch and export 
the mountain bongo, which uh, there's only a hundred or so left in the wild. But because of his efforts, they, you know, they, there's mountain bongo in zoos in America and Europe and even the Marquinhos Safari Club here. And so he used to move around a lot. And then when uh, game capture was banned in 1979, he became an artist, a wildlife artist. He was, a, he was a recluse and a very quiet person and a perfectionist. And so, um, yeah, we moved around all over the, all over Kenya, mostly in wilderness places like uh, Ukambani, when it was still quite wild, uh, Nyanyuki. We used to live in Nyanyuki and also in uh, Ulu, um, up in Ruru, all over the place. And so that that's how I basically grew up running around. I hardly went to school. Um, I I couldn't really read until I was about fourteen. My sister had to read, and uh, yeah, that, that 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 was it. And then well, um, I'd, I'd say you say you hardly went. You didn't go to school. Uh, let Let's clarify that and say you didn't go to formal school, but you were certainly raised in the bush school, which is a whole different. <laughs> reality and way of living and with the rhythms of the planet which part of what this show is about is what we're disconnected from here in our western uh passing and and hope for the american dream we've become a little disconnected from the wild rhythms of life so um i you know i wouldn't downplay the skills that you have so what are some of your early childhood memories and um why you followed into these footsteps and went into the wildlife and conservation, let's call it business or um, passion of, of just what you needed to do with life? What clicked for that for you? It was, uh, I, I can't really put my finger on it. It came slowly to me, mostly through my uncle, who was uh, the chief game warden of, of the Salu and made it what it is, you know, the size it is today. And listening to, listening to his stories really really motivated me and gave me vision and gave me an idea of what I wanted to do. Um, I have to say that my first language wasn't English, it was Kiswahili. And sometimes when my dad and mum were on safari, we, we used to just stay with the ayah, um, you know, the, the nanny. And that, that was three or four months. And we'd go, because of the places we lived, we'd go for months without seeing another white person. It was just me and some African guys, and we'd just fiddle around and do what we had to do with my brother and sister. So I, I, I can't say exactly what or where. Slowly it came along and I just, I just I'd say more than, than being a conservationist, I, I, I became a diehard African. I didn't ever want to leave this country. And even when, my, um, when the opportunity came to, to, to leave, you know, to go to school in England or whatever, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't bring myself to leave. I, I did everything I could to stay in Kenya. And, well, uh, in your yeah. story, in your story here um, from Meru in the days, um, why don't you tell us how you got into being a pilot? You sort of flew into that. Uh, uh, I was my uncle, another uncle of mine, was uh, Mike Amos, and he was an, an instructor at Wilson. He used to teach people how to fly, and I couldn't imagine anybody being able to fly. And uh, since I was a since I was a kid, I, I wanted to fly. So it was very, very hard economically for me to learn to fly, but eventually we, we sort of scrounged the money together, and I went to America, and I learned to fly in Arizona, actually, in Prescott. Arizona here in the U.S.? Yeah. This is, yeah, that's right. Prescott, Funny you should you know, say that. Uh, An airplane is flying over right now, and I was recently in Arizona. Serendipity, <laughs> go ahead. 
So I went uh, got, and got my license in, in, in the US. It took six months to do my commercial and everything and came back to Kenya. I didn't actually have a job lined up or anything. I'm, I'm not one of those people that are particularly well connected or anything. So I went around Wilson looking for a job and somebody mentioned that KWS were, were recruiting. So I went there and I, I, I'd always you know, dreamt about flying those the, the KWS airplanes and being in, in that sort of scene. And uh, there were about 50 applicants. It was tons of people trying to get that job. And eventually, only three people got it. And I was number four, so I didn't actually get it. But then it turned out that the one person who, who did get it was, was too fat and couldn't fit in the plane. <laughs> so the, uh, the chief pilot, who was the first Maasai to go supersonic in a jet, um, you know, I got on with him pretty well and told him my story and all that. So he called me up and said... Um, do you want to? Do you want to? Do you want to comply for us? And I said, "Are you kidding?" And that was it. I never looked back. So let's back up a little bit. When when was this? This what was you... in uh, 1999. So things have changed a bit. Tell us about the. Um, I mean, that's almost the good old days in Kenya compared to what's going on today. A lot of things have changed. And you talked about the Salu. I'd like to get in to that a little bit because a lot is going on in the Salu today compared to 20, 30 years ago. So um, back in 1998, it was a little more wild and woolly than it is now. And for our listeners, just so they understand, KWS is the Kenya Wildlife Service, which was begun by Richard Leakey. And um, tell us a little bit about its mandate back in the day and um you know some of the things that you had to do it was it was sort of what we would call the wild west it it was the wild west and uh, you know the I, rangers and, and and their officers especially the ones that, that did the security work <laughs> were similar to sort of judge dread we, we we ruled the parks and you can imagine salva is the size of israel so we were always you know we we ruled them and and we had a Although we, I don't think we exercised it that much, but we had a pre, we had a presidential decree that to to shoot on sight. So anybody seen in a park illegally, we had a presidential decree, which wasn't repealed until Kibaki got into power. That we had we were allowed to shoot on sight. So it was quite a dangerous place for for criminals to be. But what you have to remember in those days is that we weren't really you know the bandits and the poachers weren't Kenyans. They were sort of the remnants of the Somali elite presidential guard. And when Somalia collapsed, all these guys, they're well-trained, they were trained in Russia, and they're trained wherever, in Yemen and all these sort of places. They had nothing to do, and they had all these skills, and they had all these guns. And they, you know, after the um, 1990, when what happened in in, uh, in Somalia, and, 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 and all, the, all those M16s and guns were left behind by when the Americans were withdrawing, they, that's what they used, and they used to come into the park. So there were two things that happened there. You had really well-trained people, and then you had these really high-powered guns, but also they didn't, they, didn't, um, you know, they didn't care. They never cared about dying. So whenever it became a contact, there was no question of, you know, try, you, you try and get them to surrender, but it was pointless. They'd, they'd fight until the last, the, last, uh, the last breath. I remember... Uh, actually, it was in 2003 when I was just leaving KWS. There was a, a contact. I was actually in Nairobi. And they called me and they said uh, there's a contact along one of the rivers there near the Lugards. So I flew there. And by the time I got there, it was sort of 3, 3.30, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. 
and we couldn't get hold of them because no, there was no contact with the radios, the radio's batteries had died and all that sort of thing. So we were flying around and we found them. And then they, they held up two guns, which means one ranger is down. And, uh, you know, it took, it took, it took, um, the, 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 the river was, was in spate. So the vehicles couldn't get across. So we couldn't support our rangers on the other side. And they, 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 they managed to pin down um, the the bandits in a sort of in a sort of cave. Um, so by nightfall, we managed to drop them some batteries, and they communicated that one of the rangers had been shot and was wounded. So I picked him up and flew him to to Voy at night, and he died later on that night, which was very very sad, because he was one of the guys that we'd recently recruited from. I knew him, you know, I'd been on the recruitment and he was, he was a very young, keen guy from, from Lamu, actually. Anyway, so uh, when the, the fight continued the next day, special ops arrived and the, the head of the, the top guy was a Maasai guy who, you know, he's a sergeant and really experienced sort of thing. Anyway, he crept up the valley and he, you know, to see where these bandits were, stuck his head around a tree and got nailed in the eye. Oh. You know, they shot him straight through the eye from like 50 yards, you know, so these guys were really, they're on their game. By this stage, we'd lost two rangers, so two rangers were dead, and um, we didn't know what to do, so we called in the GSU. And the GSU went in there, now this is the next, this is day three, and you know, these things, they, when they drag on like this, they're really, they're really quite awful. But one thing I found strange was that when I was flying overhead, there was no... Uh, they weren't shooting at the aeroplane. Just hold on a bit. Are you there? Yeah. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you. So they weren't shooting at the aeroplane, which was strange because normally the bandits always shot at the aeroplane and that took their, their, you know, their concentration and that allowed, our, that allowed us to guide the rangers in. So... Um, that was a bit strange. And the next day, the GSU arrived with grenades and RPGs and all this sort of thing. And they literally bombed this cave. And when they got in there, there was one Samadhi. He, the others were already dead. And he was, you know, because of the grenades and everything, he was virtually dead. And the gun was empty. His last round had been shooting that, that sergeant. Uh, Can you imagine? Well, <laughs> so they never give up. Well, you were really throat... I'm 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 astonished and astounded by the story. You were really thrown into this by the seat of your pants, literally um, dropped in to a situation that you had said you know a minute ago was very dangerous and sort of open for criminals, but uh, sounds like it was just as dangerous for you and uh, the the people who were tasked with protecting the park. So we're going to take a short break here for a minute. And um, we're talking with Michael Nicholson out of uh, Nairobi, Kenya. He's there for a break. We're going to take a short little break. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and you can find Mike Nicholson on Facebook and learn more about his life and what he's doing today. So stick with us. This is Ellie Weiss in Our Wild World, and we'll be right back. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big. Scary. 
beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up, our forests don't grow, our communities go hungry, our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect, it's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back. This is Ellie Weiss and my guest today, Mike Nicholson from Nairobi, Kenya, who's a pilot, a uh, ranch manager, and one of the old school, old style, but yet very modern man of Kenya today. So Mike, before the break, you astonished us with a story of your first incident of becoming a part of the Kenya Wildlife Service and being dropped in uh hopefully somewhat prepared for your first mission in in uh, the the park there. So give us an idea of just how remote this area is. I, I'm, I'm hoping our listeners understand that when you flew in and landed at the camp in the landing strip, we're not talking about an airport that has a... Um, a, a center and you know a landing strip and an arrival base and pavement we're talking wild remote areas there's no people up there but you and perhaps the the bandits correct that's correct yes it's a uh, it's very well as you said it is very remote um the the airstrips we we generally used were you know the the, the, the you're there alone there was no no fire emergency or anything no no um, medical support. Yeah, you just you just literally landed in the in the strip and did what you had to do and then took off again. I mean, they, they still operate like that to a large degree because of the size of the national parks. You know, like I said, uh, Salva is the size of Israel. So when you're landing in the middle of it, you really are alone there. And Salva is still one of the largest intact ecosystems in Kenya today. And you had mentioned. Um, this was in the, ni- the late 90s when poaching, and you're talking about Somali, very well uh, trained and uh, armed uh, ex-Somali pres- presidential 
uh, guard. So these men are highly trained, highly prepared. Were you at all prepared to face this kind of um, an opponent? And was this really sort of the beginning of the new poaching wars with the cartels and highly funded? Um, I'd say that period was the end of an era. It was the end of the Somali poacher. Uh, to a large degree, and the and the beginning of of indigenous poaching. At that stage, it was all yeah, basically Somalis and war, warlords and all that. And and it, it's it's morphed into a more I'd say nowadays local indigenous. You know, it's the people around the park that are doing the poaching, as opposed to people coming all the way from Somalia and doing the poaching. So, how do you think? Um, it's let's let's skip around in terms of history to today. So back then you were dealing with poachers, well-armed gangs, and the rangers were not exactly trained up in military style. It was more um, patrolling the, the area the, and the occasional. The rangers in those days were were really well trained. They they really were. They 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 were trained basically by the GSU General Service Unit. So, so what changed? The... What changed? How did it change to? I, I tell you what, it never changed. The, the Rangers are still well trained; they're, they're, they can do the job. But I think politically things changed. I don't think that they've got the the backing that they used to have. You know, there's a lot more. There can be in the old days. You know, you just did what you had to do. Nowadays, there's so many. There's so much red tape that and um, so many so agendas. Political fallout. Well, there's a lot of political fallout. You know, you kill. You let's say you you. you happen to kill some of the bandits and they turn out to be connected to some big wig here and it's going to be it's not easy anymore so that's, I mean, to, that's the problem today the bandits are still well connected but they're more connected to international cartels you had said today it's more the the local part poacher but aren't they facing the issues of poverty and the the idea of quick money to supply for a, an international wildlife trade, so oh, definitely the, the game has changed, so to speak, and the money has changed. You know, in in the old days, it was it was nowhere near what they're offering now for a for a, for a, for a rhino horn. Rhino horn now is more valuable than gold per ounce. So how it's, do you deal really... with? I I understand that you're no longer part of. Kenya Wildlife Service, but you're still working on a ranch, and you still are have are working with and protecting wildlife and conservation, and working to with the local communities a lot, which I understand. So, how um, how do you it's, go it, about working with the local communities today, with this changing landscape and the money that's at stake to help local people understand the benefit of uh, live wildlife? Well, you know, the the thing is, you've got to, you, you just have to change with the times. So what I do now is I don't really run around with guns and uniforms anymore, but I talk to people. I spend hours and hours explaining to them, not so much the value, because I don't want to put a monetary value on, you know, it's a heritage more than a value. And that's what I try to put across them. We have a local school, and I, I sometimes go and give presentations there to the young, to the young kids, and I, I tell them, look, you know, the, the, some things don't have a value, and, and wildlife doesn't really have a value. You know, one one day the tourist is here, looking at it. That's great. We're all getting money. The next day there's a bomb in Mombasa, and the tourist isn't here. We're not getting money. That doesn't degrade the value of the wildlife, as terms of a, in terms of your national heritage. You know, imagine waking up one day uh, from having elephants to waking up and not having elephants. 
and and that's what that's the message I put across to the communities that I talk to, and it really works, and it works for everything. You know, I explained to them, um, you know, the ranch that I look after, we used to have a lot of uh, poaching and and wood cutting, and you know, they're they're in poverty. They're not they're not wealthy. They're they're struggling. They're struggling much worse than anybody can ever imagine. But if you just explain, look, that, that tree has to die, it has to rot, so then it goes back into the ground, so then the bugs can eat it, so then it can grow again. And the bugs are the, are the biggest plow that, that in the world. Without, without insects, there's no, there's no the, you know, the, the, the soil will die. Yet the soil needs that dead wood to eat. And it's, it's like that. You just have to, and you really have to be patient and talk to people slowly so they understand that it's not, you know, it's not, it's not my wildlife. And it's not the government's wildlife. It's theirs. And it, it's for them to look after. And if it goes, they're the ones that are going to have to, you know, explain to their kids where it went. So how That's do you bridge? Let me interject here. So how do you bridge that concept when you just said it's not the government's wildlife, it's our wildlife. But politically, the government owns the wildlife. So this has been a lot of the contention over the past, I'm going to say, five, ten years in Kenya with the new constitution and the new um, land management plan and the new wildlife plan, that if it, if you don't feel that it really is yours and you, you can't necessarily financially directly benefit from live wildlife because you're told that the wildlife isn't yours, it's owned by the government, how do you make that bridge with the people that you work with that it is really their wildlife. How how do you do that? Well, you know, they have it, it's 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 an ownership thing. It's a feeling that you have to you have to teach people. It, it's and they had it, you know, until recently it was always there. But it's only now when people are saying trying to put a value on everything that they're starting to lose that. But it's like kids, isn't it? I mean, you're not going to make any money from your kids, but you still love them and look after them until they're grown and, and leave house. Oh, uh, good analogy. It's the same thing. And that's what I try to put across. I say, these are yours. You know, the government might say they're theirs. The, the, the landowners might say that they're going to benefit from them. But it's yours. Ultimately, it is yours. If it goes, you are the one who have to now explain where they've gone to your kids. And it's, that's what it is. You have to <coughs> teach people to love things, not for what they're worth. You love, you love your wife, not because she's going to bring you any money or your husband, or your kids, or your auntie, or your uncle. You just love them, don't you? And that's the way they should treat wildlife. So what do you think happened? You said they used to have this connection, which we all know. I mean, there's that um, sort of fantasy image of the, the tribal African, Maasai, Sambru, Rendili, Turkana, living out there in the landscape, connected and in harmony with the wildlife. <laughs> So somewhere along the line, conflict happened, and I tend to think it's when we started putting more value on wildlife than we did on people, and started creating enemies of conservation and conservation refugees as we started separating people from wildlife. And you said it yourself a minute ago that conservation and wildlife conservation really is about people. So you say they used to have this affinity, this connection. It was innate. It was grown up. It was part of the culture. It was part of the history. So what well, was... Well, also there's, there's sustainability. Sorry, see, say that again? There was sustainability. You know, the wildlife never threatened the, the, you know, the, 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 the living standards of people. That was their standard. That wildlife was their living standard. Whereas now, 
you know, in, in, in when the British first arrived here in the first census, there was 1.3 million Kenyans. Um, in 1990, when I joined KWS, there were 28 million Kenyans. I mean, 1999, there were 28 million Kenyans. Now there are 40, 45 million. The population is is just growing out of it's unsustainable. So everybody is hungry, you know. And if they can sell a rhino horn for more than it's worth for gold, then of course they're going to do that, you know. Especially if they're not taught to to just love the thing. And I think the biggest problem with a lot of NGOs is that they especially in the north, is that they are employing the locals, so they're empowering the locals, which is wonderful, so everybody gets a job. But by doing that, they're making them sedentary. And they're not giving them the job and the money and then educating them on how to use that money. So what do they do? They rush off and they go and buy more goats, more camels, more cows, because that is their bank. That, that, to them, is their financial bank. And, you know, it's fine at the beginning, but now more and more NGOs, more and more employing local people, you know, getting them to sell their beads and everything. And they're making money out of it. And with that money, instead of investing it, like, you know, in a, in a building or a shop or a whatever, they're just going off and buying more goats. I mean, I've been flying over northern, you know, north, well, it's not really northern, but, you know, the sort of Kipsing, Samburu area for the last 15 years, let's say. And I've watched it go from bad to worse. And it's a, it's a direct thing the village gets bigger and the land around it just gets worse and that's just and that i think is a lot to do with people not being educated on how to use their money they're still investing in their in their in their mobile bank which is the animal the cow and perhaps a shift from nomad nomadic pastoralism to sedentary settlements villages where the water is and you know a change in cultural lifestyle Oh, totally, yeah, but it's because there's so many more of them, and there's so many, the, you know, all the schools have appeared there. In the old days, there were no schools in, in, in these remote places. People had to go to the big towns. But the, the services are coming to them, you know, the water, the schools, the hospitals, the NGOs, the money, but there's no bank. So they don't know how to invest their money. So so they just, instead of investing it in a, in a you know, in Safaricom or an IPO of some kind, no. They're just investing it in more in more stock. You know, that's the quickest way for them to make money. And it's fine when it's one of them. But then, you know, you've got USAID, you've got uh, all these NRT and everybody, and they're all employing locals. They're all getting more money. And they know if I buy a goat for 2,000 bob, I keep it for three years, it's now worth 6,000 bob. That's fantastic return. So that's, that's one of the problems, I think, with conservation. So you're, you're talking about a gap in conceptual understanding of um yes of, of what has changed and in the background in terms of what has changed so how do you think we me as a conservationist here in the west and an ngo or advice or um unconceptual understanding for us how can we uh better bridge this gap to make conservation efforts work more Flu- uh, fluidly. Know, I mean, you being on the ground, us, we don't live there. It's, you know, we talk about it, but what do you think it is we could do um, with our funds and our our skill sets? How do you think we can better translate and transition this on the ground to the local communities? You know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a typical Kenyan. I know the problems, I just don't know the answers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm right there in the same you know, boat with you. I've got so, some ideas, but you know they're not they're not cast in stone. And really, the only way to do this is to get a whole lot of people that that have been doing work in in conservation and and with NGOs and all that to sit together and see the problem. Because if they can see, you know, they're clever guys. They're a lot cleverer than me. 
if they can sit down in a in a think tank and say, okay, well, we think that yeah, Mike Nicholson might be right. We're in, we're we're doing, you know, too many people. They're invest. They're not investing their money properly. They'll find a way to do it because most of what they do is right. Yeah, let's say ninety percent of what they do is right. But there's a tipping point where now they're doing more wrong than right, with the right heart. You know, <laughs> their heart's in the right place. It's just. Well, I think we're at a point now that what you say is exactly what is needed. There are so many more people. There are so many more ideas. And gathering around and connecting the dots between the these ideas and getting them down on the local level as opposed to the meeting rooms and boardrooms in the offices and in the cities. So um, it, we're going to take another short break here. And uh, once again, I'd... This is my guest today is Mike Nicholson. This is Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. You can find Mike on Facebook and Wild Eyes and Our Wild World on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And we will be right back. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big. Scary. Beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to our wild world. And welcome back with my guest, Mike Nicholson, and this is Ellie Weiss in Our Wild World. So before the break, we were talking about that conservation really is about people and what has changed in East Africa and really across Sub-Saharan Africa in over the last several decades is the amount of people that are living with, amongst, and must coexist with wildlife, a lot of that predatory, and the loss of space and 
places and corridors for wildlife to go. You spent a lot of time, Mike, in Savo. So let's focus on that for just a little bit. It, as we had said before, it is one of the last largest intact ecosystems that almost uh, straddles Kenya and the border down into Tanzania um, in, in a much larger, in, in terms of the Savo ecosystem that goes all the way down into Mukamazi and to the Ngorogoro Conservation Area and all the way up into the Maasai Steppe and Savo and all the way up into the north. So this is uh, an arid uh, area, not really great for people and agriculture, but it is great for wildlife. So where do you think in terms of where we as conservation is headed and Kenya as a country is, is home to some of the last large free-ranging wild populations of unique wildlife. Where do you think the future will be if we start running out of room and the the pressure starts building up around these parks? Well, I think uh, the uh, I, I don't think that wildlife can, can sustain this, you know, can the conservationists and wildlife and everybody can sustain it for much longer i don't think it's that bright you know unless we change the hearts and minds of the young of the young and the middle class and the poor there's no hope so how do we do that um i mean it's just education. you and me talking here we're not we're not doing mandates or a political circle but I'm, I'm genuinely interested because this is what i do how do we how do we engage the hearts and minds of the young people today that progress and development is not just about nike sony and roads that lead to nowhere and tvs that it is about the, the cultural heritage when western culture is pushing and selling this I'm going to call it the American dream is the best and the brightest. How do we, how do we shift that well, to I a think, place like I East Kenya? Problem, I, I, I talked to a very interesting guy once, uh, a Kenyan guy, and he told me the problem with, with Kenyans is they think flat. They think you know, flat? They, they think flat. They, they, I That's know, a good phrase. Strange. But he, he said the problem with Kenyans is that they just think of buying more land, you know, little farms. They, they just want to move flat. What we need to do is realize that the population is going to be 60 million in another 15 years' time, and then 70, and then 80 is not going to stop. So we, we, it's not about so much. It, it, it is engaging with the communities on, on the fringes and all that, but it's education. You've got to move people. You've got to, people have to leave these farms, like in Europe and, and, and North America and stuff. People don't live out in the middle of nowhere growing a few spots to live off. You know, they move to town and they built it. They move into skyscrapers and they get involved in IT and they get involved in, you know, writing books and all this other stuff. They don't. They don't. They, whereas Kenyans, man, at the moment, they just everybody has to have a farm. It's like a status thing, and that's that's that to me is one of the problems. I'm not saying it is the problem, but they're trying. You know, they're starting to build the Konza city, which will be uh, an IT hub for Eastern Central Africa. That's fantastic, but it's not moving at the speed the population is growing. So the population is really growing. So Earth is and limited. There's there's only so much land. Land will always have value. We're coming to realize that more and more. But as you just said, as population grows, there's still only so much land. So if the goal is yeah. to buy land and to have more cattle or livestock, how how do you yeah, they, personally go about they, in your work? Combining living and coexisting with wildlife. 
yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a serious balance which you have to just just work on every day to try and get it to work. It's it's not easy. So what and do you think? Could, when, what do you think could um, be different in the um, education system in in the actual teaching? Let's call it the curriculum that would bring together uh, the reality of where these people live in these rural areas. That is a home to wildlife that is remote, that has little water, that's not great for agriculture and really not always that great for livestock. How do we, I know a colleague of yours, Jamie Roberts, uh, I believe you worked with Trop- Tropic Air and I've known Jamie yes. for a while and he started a, a project up in the northern area, up in, in Kalacha, outside of Marsabit, right. which was a yeah. local community owned Banda to bring in tourists and raise money. And I remember you were talking about um, just a little bit ago uh, the bank account, the livestock, and understanding savings accounts. And he was trying to uh, work toward implementing understanding of savings rather than have livestock on the hoof, have it represented by a savings account. But it never really took off. How do you think we can go about in a, in the curriculum? whether it's NGOs and volunteers teaching students and passing on information on the fly, um, that we can help make this connection that banking on earth and banking on your land will be the solution and the, the, the key and the core to our survival, their very survival. Man, I have no idea. I suppose the best thing is just uh, to look at how how they did it in 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 in, the, in Singapore and all these other countries where land is limited. You know, they they, they had to go somewhere, so they went. They, they started building skyscrapers and moved into that, and started doing IT and working on on that. And I think social. There's not enough social uh, education in Kenya about how to how. how um, of public to, good? Yes, that's right. You know, I, I think they need to do more of that, a lot more of that. And that Low, comes raise from... Raise the standard of living. Okay, and that, that comes from socializing and being connected. So perhaps, you know, some of it is there's such a disparate uh, gap between the have and the have-nots. And in this sense, I'm talking economically. Sorry, go it's ahead. It's a massive gap. It's a massive gap. The, the, you know, I was looking the other day at an advert for a house. I mean... It was like, it was like five million dollars. This house, and and people are buying it. Yet there's another guy who who doesn't have any money at all, and they're just sort of there. Yeah, it's a huge disparity between and, the poor and the haves and the have-nots. Yeah. So another colleague of mine in Botswana, he had pointed out the difference of a different definition of the have and the have-nots. There's the have and the have-nots financially, economically, who have yeah. a large bank account, dollars. And then there's yep. the have and the have-nots who have wildlife versus those who do, those of us who do not. Like here in the U.S., we've lost a lot of our wildlife. That's part of the yep. reason why so many NGOs from the U.S. are um, put pressure on to help protect the last of the wildlife that does remain in Kenya. So perhaps it's a, it's a, a societal shift of will that in a difference in the definition of what to have and what that is means. That's right. That's why I said that the, the value of wildlife shouldn't be monetary. So how do we value it? If it's not got a dollar price tag on it, how do we value it? It's, it's, a, big, it's a big argument these days or big debate. How, who owns the wildlife and how do we value it? 
We seem to put a value on a dead animal, a rhino horn or an elephant tusk, but how do we value live wildlife? I don't know. I suppose teaching them to appreciate, teaching everybody to just appreciate things for what they are. You know, it's, uh, it's, it, uh, it's, it's like love, isn't it? You can't put a value on love, can you? Yet, yet you do. It's, it, that's what we have to put across. That's a message we have to teach people. That it's, you, have to, you have to really love this stuff. I, lo- I, then- I love that analogy. I have not heard that before, and I'm probably going to use that again, so thank you, and I'll quote you on that. But I think you're absolutely right. There's an intrinsic value to the things that we love, and somehow in this quest for dollars, which I call the benchmark of health and wealth, must shift, and we need to revalue what it is that's important and that it's not always about how fat our wallet is and how much money and how much big a house we've got or even how many cows we've got so hopefully I'll tell you, I'll, tell you, work- I'll, I'll, I'll tell you one thing we went to a meeting once and uh the, the the community said unless you pay us we are going to kill this wildlife <laughs> and that that day the day i heard that is the day I said that's it. There's no they, money is not going to save wildlife. Education, social responsibility, all these things are going to save it, but not money. Money in a, in a different way, but not paying them money. Not right, money is needed for conservation. Absolutely, is needed. One hundred percent. I yeah. mean, I've talked with um, Max Graham up in Lykepia, and part of his message is that. If we in the West and Europe want to see African wildlife free and wild, then we do need to pay for it. And I am 100% in agreement with that, that we need to help support that. If it's that important to us here in the West, then we should afford to also pay for it to help offset that balance and fill that gap and that crevasse that's missing to bring up the social and the societal will in the people who count in 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 the far reaches of the landscape across that's that that makes perfect sense but it's how those dollars are used oh absolutely i mean it's it's frightening when you look at some of the statistics of how much money is coming into conservation and then to see that we're still losing wildlife at unprecedented rates it, it, you know, I get well, it becomes, it becomes a business. It, it becomes a business on both sides, doesn't it? So the poachers are making money by killing the wildlife. The 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 people who are in conservation um, are also making money off the poachers killing the wildlife because the donors give them more money to protect it. So it's you know one has to be careful. There's got to be a balance. There's a, there's a point where that those dollars have to, that, that the way those dollars are used has to be looked at really really carefully. And I think buying more guns and buying more land cruisers and buying more, I think that is a total waste of time. That money should go into education, programs, the communities need to be taught about appreciating things and and all that sort of thing. But, you know, maybe the money should be used for scholarships, education, education, education. But I don't think boots on the ground, helicopters, guns, people running around in camo, no, that's not going to do it. That's for the movies. It's for the movies? Well, it seems in some ways, from what I'm hearing, the landscape of wildlife protection, anti-poaching, conservation, seems to have grabbed the um, excitement, risk, danger factor of the always needing to be engaged in adventure, 
Western mind. They want to see um, that it's it's action and risk at every turn. And I guess what I'm I'm hoping we hear from you is that it is not that that it, it's not wildlife t- TV where something is happening around the corner every time. It's quiet no. out there. Wildlife moves at a very different pace than we do, and it's our job to just keep uh, providing it space so that it can do what it can do and provide the free services it gives to us in terms of our survival and keeping our planet alive. There's a, there's a very interesting concept that I read about. I don't know who wrote about it, but it's called, it's where you, you de-escalate things. So, you know, I came, I was paramilitary trained. I did the whole thing properly. Um, I did. Every, I used to run around with a, gu- a proper government gun and a government airplane and do all those things and think I was a bit of a Rambo. But there comes a point where you. I read this thing and I learned that actually you need to de-escalate. You need to. And I think it's because of all the time I spent in Somalia. You know, I went from from trying to kill people to trying to save them. I was like Moses in the Bible sort of thing. And um, it really taught me that the gun is actually, you know, if you if you can talk to somebody. They'll put that gun on the on in the cupboard and leave it there. I think but you're absolutely if I have a gun, right. If I have a gun and you have a gun, now we're we're sort of uh, you know uh, trying to trying to a bit of up and going each other. On. Yeah, and eventually you'll have a tank and I'll have a tank, and that's how it goes. Whereas if we say, look, let's just sit here and talk. Okay, there's there's instances where that won't work, but if you're going to get communities on your side. Uh, the days of running around strong-arming people are, are gone. You know, they really are. You know, it's just about getting in there, talking to them. And uh, when I took over our family farm in Lycopia, my old father-in-law had fought in Palestine. He was a real old soldier. He'd been in the Black Watch, and he was a Scottish guy and all this sort of thing. And uh, there were guns everywhere. And the first thing I did was was take all the guns away, put them in the store, and we just stayed with no guns. And everybody was in fear. They said, how are we going to live here? How can we live here? We know they've got guns out there. How are we going to stop the poaching? How are we going to you know, protect ourselves? And I said, just watch. It'll do it itself. Because if, 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 if you tone down the rhetoric and you stop that, you can actually sit and talk. And there'll be a compromise. Everybody has to compromise. Even it's, the guy with the gun, he's, he's not enjoying killing everything. Well, I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head. And I love that term, um, de-escalate. I think as a global community, that's where we're at. We have to de-escalate. And we have to agree to disagree and sit down and talk. I think what we've lost over the past few decades with all our smart technology and instantaneous accessibility, which is wonderful because it allows me to talk to you at this moment in time in two different places on planet Earth, but at the same time, it's taken away the face-to-face uh, ability of us to sit down and deal with each other, looking at each other in the eye and talking it out. That, that I, I think is 100%. And I think what we're losing in Kenya, and it's getting more and more now, is, is what, what I call, there's been since, in certain areas, I'm not going to say who or where, but there's something I call elitist conservation. Elitist conservation, and now what's happening is elitist security, you know, and it's all, it's taking us away from, from our people. Elitist yeah. conservation is where, can you hear me? Yes. 
elitist conservation, in my opinion, is where you've got, you know, a guy or a few or a syndicate of people who can raise huge amounts of money, and they they use this money to do conservation. They're doing what they believe in and all that sort of thing. But the buy-in is too big. You know, you need so much money to run a conservation organization that it becomes impossible unless you've got donors racked up from, you know, from the, from the Prince of Wales to, to people in America. You're not going to achieve it, whereas that is unsustainable. It is totally unsustainable. And now that is also becoming elitist security, you know, where you get people running around in camo and all this sort of thing. I mean, you know, what do you think the poor community think of that? You're absolutely right, and this is this has been a wonderful conversation because this we've just gone for full circle through this conversation. We have pretty much nailed what has changed over the last couple of decades in con- con- conservation. That it's become elite. It's become the the private playground of large donors and celebrity, and we've sort of lost the effect where it actually ends up affecting things on the ground that it becomes a circular feeding itself kind of thing and it never really trickles out into the communities so i think we need to scale back you scale back and de-escalate i think i think you nailed it <laughs> well thank you very much Ellie. well thank you this has been a wonderful conversation and unfortunately we're out of time and um so you're heading off to the northern area into a new and exciting job and brand new things for you to do. But you have the skill sets and the lifestyle and the right head on your shoulders that I think you're going you're gonna to find some very interesting times ahead. And hopefully my personal wish is that you'll continue to communicate uh, your thoughts and ideas and talk to people because really that's what our wild world is about, talking to each each other and uh, exchanging ideas it's fantastic i've had a really good time thank you and uh, hopefully we'll meet you one of these days you bet uh you're on the top of my list to come and visit on my next trip which hopefully will be as soon as the winter settles in here and gets cold i'll come over there where it's nice and warm and pop in and give you a visit and i'd love to go up in the pla- in the air with you anytime All right. Well, thank you so much, Mike, and thank you, listeners. This is Ellie Weiss with my guest today, Mike Nicholson. Find him on Facebook. Read some of his stories. He's a fascinating man. Follow us on Twitter and uh, our website, www.wildeyes.org, and go step outside and enjoy our wild world. Thank you. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.